Welcome to the Southern Naturalist Podcast, Nature Notes Edition. These are shorter episodes where we read and discuss interesting information about nature, written by Bob Thomas, a naturalist and environmental educator in the greater New Orleans area for 50 years. My name is Amay Thomas, and Bob is my dad. We're both professors at Loyola University New Orleans and naturalist and fascinated by nature and all she has to offer. As the founding director of the Louisiana Nature Center, an avid nature lover who's a certified Louisiana master naturalist and a professor of environmental communication, I began writing nature notes based on natural history observations and in response to frequent questions. And there are hundreds of these nature notes that Dad started writing decades ago, so we're excited to share some of our favorites. We hope to encourage more people to experience the healing power of nature and develop a stronger will to protect it as our home. This Nature Note podcast is brought to you in part by the Loyola University Center for Environmental Communication. You can find all of the Nature Notes and more by visiting our website at lucec.loyno.edu. The Nature Note that we're using today was originally published in July of 2010. And we're not going to read it like we sometimes do with our Nature Notes. We're going to talk about the things that we find interesting about dragonflies. Um, But we have the Nature Note as a reference for you, so you can certainly download it and uh, share it with your friends. Well, look, I was um, I was out in Audubon Park last week with my Loyola students, and um, so again, another opportunity to get out and just look at nature and see what's happening and um, figure out, you know, what what kinds of things are interesting at this time of the year. And one of the things that my students pointed out and we noticed were that there were dragonflies flying everywhere, mm-hmm. and um, so it made us realize um, we need to do an episode that's dedicated to these incredible insects, because it is that time of the year. It is dragonfly season. Right, yeah. As a matter of fact, I mean, in our area, one of the characteristic events in the fall is that they tend to swarm, uh, into, especially into protected areas. Yeah. And uh, my backyard in an urban area uh, sometime might have 50 or 60 dragonflies flying around and feeding and uh, sitting on the vegetation and things like that. But uh, swarming is real typical at this time of the year. Yeah, and well, and like typical academics, we call this fall, even though officially it's still summer. Right. Right. But um, but so we tend to see this a lot as the summer gets, you know, we get near the end of the summer. Right. And so that's, um, that's exactly what we're going to talk about here. So I'm just going to start off with some fun facts. You okay. good with that? Let's do it. Okay. So I mentioned that dragonflies are these incredible insects. Um, So some of the fun facts about them is that they've been around for 320 million years. And there is some evidence in our fossil record that some of the um, dragonflies that were around at that time were two to three feet in length. Two to three feet for an insect. An insect that today is actually on the larger size but they only get about two to five inches today. So, I mean, that's something that I think is pretty fascinating. Um, any idea why they might be smaller today? Well, there, there are a couple of hypotheses and uh, uh, fun to talk about, fun to think about adaptive biology of critters. But uh, back when they, when they evolved, when they were three feet across on their wingspan, uh, there was a lot more oxygen concentration in the air. And insects 
have to absorb it through their cuticles, through the openings in their cuticles. And uh, so as uh, uh, some people believe that as we had less and less and less percentages of oxygen in the air, that they had to get smaller and smaller and smaller to be able to survive. Well, thank goodness, because if we had roaches that were three feet across, I might die. <laughs> <laughs> the one insect I can't handle. <laughs> uh, that's exactly right. No, it, it could well be. Yeah. Uh, but also, the, the, the other hypothesis is that as... Um, uh, birds and and, uh, and and especially small and aggressive uh, uh, dinosaur related animals came on that they, they just outcompeted them that they yeah. just uh, they they were able to grab the three footers and eat them and they outcompeted them for prey and uh, and so gradually they got they did like a lot of animals did natural selection took over and they got smaller and smaller and smaller but they maintain their incredible ability as a predator. Yeah. Well, let's talk about that because that's one of the things that makes them so fascinating as well. And whenever I teach this to students or or to anyone interested in dragonflies, I always say they are voracious predators because they are. Um, And that's interesting is that not just in their larval stage, but also in their adult stage, which isn't always the case with insects. So in the larval stage where they live for sometimes two to three years in the water, which is also something that's fascinating about them that that we'll touch on a little bit more, but they will eat each other. They will eat small fishes. They will eat uh, other insects that are in the water. They'll pretty much eat anything that they can. Um, and, and some of them specialize, but most of them are just opportunistic. And then as adults, oh my gosh, they are the most effective aerial predator with a 95% success rate. And to put that into contrast, let's talk about something that people always think, you know, is like the most incredible aerial um, predator, the peregrine falcon. So compare... 95% success rate of a dragonfly with the peregrine falcon. What do you think the difference is? is 23%. It- <laughs> you did your homework. I did my homework. <laughs> so peregrine falcons' success rate is 23%. Owls, which are also really great, incredible predators, totally adapted for um, catching their prey at night on the wing, 25% success rate. Mm-hmm. And, and interestingly, the predators that we all and another predator that we think is just so incredible the lion has a success rate of three percent pretty amazing pretty amazing yeah so let's talk about some of these um, different adaptations and these different aspects that we just kind of teased at the beginning because um we want people to learn about them right. they're insects that you can find no matter you know where you live you can go outside at this time of the year particular late summer Mm -hmm. um, into fall and you can find them and um, people even look at them through binoculars with uh, like like birders do right I mean there's an entire book that is for looking and identifying dragonflies using binoculars well lots lots of books by the way and a lot of people do this as a a hobby like uh, uh, when when I had uh, a couple of my grandchildren that I used to take out to City Park and we had binoculars with us and we went out there and all we did was focus on dragonflies and and you know there's so many species and so many variants of the patterns throughout their between males and females uh, or throughout their development 
Uh, so it makes it a real thrill. As a matter of fact, I have in, in my car, I always have a pair of uh, binoculars that focus real close, and they're there for one reason, dragonflies. dragonflies. Now, I'm not an expert. I haven't taken the time to spend a lot of time. I, I do that more with birds. But uh, but there are people who don't go bird watching. They go dragonfly dragon watching. watching. Yeah. But but there's two things. There's two things that make them such incredible predators. And one of them is their their visual acuity is amazing. If you look at one, you'll see that that the the eye wraps around all around the head. So they've got literally, they're looking ahead. They're looking behind. They're looking to the right. The, the left and below them as they're moving around and they have incredible incredible ability in the function of those uh, parts to their eyes and so that gives them a big leg up uh, the other thing is that they have a whole variety of ways that they that they hunt and uh, each one of them gives them tremendous success but uh, you know they're on the wing uh, for the most part they they feed on the wing and uh, what we're used to seeing them doing is what what people call hawking. Uh, you know, we know what hawks do. They fly through the air and grab their prey. Yep. Well, that's what these guys do mostly. But uh, when they're doing that, <coughs> um, uh, they, they will uh, uh, fly over looking for prey and then running them down and grabbing them with their mouth. And literally, if it's small enough, they just gobble them up right there. Yeah. Well, they, they all, use their feet too. And they also have these um, really strong um, hairs on their legs that mm-hmm. help them to catch the, the yeah. prey on the wing. Yeah, it's sort of like, well, uh, uh, as we say, it, it's sort of similar to uh, seining, using a seine to catch shrimp or something like that. They actually fly and use those legs like uh, like a like a seine to grab things out of the air. And and if you think about it, if you know enough about bats, you know that some bats will kind of they have a, a web of skin between their hind legs and they'll fly through the air and they'll literally scoop up prey out of the air. That that area of skin back there is called a uropatagium, uropatagium, mm. and they use it like a seine and, um, uh, and, and it's extremely effective. And then birds like uh, whippoorwills and nighthawks fly around with their mouth open. They have a gigantic mouth that's got little bristle uh, mm-hmm. feathers around the margins that also do the same thing. These, cool. Even though they're completely separate taxonomically and have, have a, a very different evolutionary pathway, they all have these same adaptive strategies for catching things on the wing. Yeah, and, and uh, there are some sources that say a single dragonfly can eat 30 to hundreds of mosquitoes per day, so they're really good at insect control. Amen. We could have used them Friday night. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> they would have been very full had they been around us oh, yeah, Friday night. Yeah, yeah. Well, look, an- another technique that they use, too, is that you might see them perched up, and you'll see them fly out, grab something, and fly back. Uh, that technique of flying out, grabbing something, and coming back, we call fly catching because that's the way fly catchers, they perch on a limb. And, the birds, fly yeah, catchers. They fly, yeah, they fly out and grab something and come back. So, so entomologists call that fly catching, and it's very, very effective for them. Um, and, and they'll just sit there and sally forth and sally back. Nice. <laughs> uh, and uh, and uh, very effectively. But um, One thing I want to add real quick. Yeah. Um, I, I know we're talking about mosquitoes and, and other things that they're eating, but there was um, when we did our bio blitz at City Park a few years ago, um, one of the really one of the best videos I got was just from the parking lot. There was a dragonfly that had um, 
I don't know if it had, it had caught a monarch um, on the wing or if it took advantage of a monarch that had, was you know on its way out. Mm-hmm. But I have video of the dragonfly eating the monarch, and the video is so clear and crisp you can hear the mandibles, the mouth parts of the dragonfly chewing that monarch. The crunch of the dragonfly. The crunch. It's pretty fascinating. That is amazing. Well, an, another another technique that they use is is what it, uh, they've termed gleaning, gleaning, G-L-E-E-N-I-N-G. And that's where they'll literally hover over plants and just move very slowly like a helicopter going out across a field. And they're, they're keeping those eyes peeled for anything that is, that's edible. And then they'll pop them and just pop them right off the leaf and eat them, and, but just keep moving. So you'll see them sort of flying back and forth searching for food. And then, and then something called, I, I love how people have taken these other activities of other animals, but uh, some dragonfly people talk about them cattle egreting. Now, you know, a cattle egret walks along there. They're most known for, in the United States for walking around in herds of cattle. And this is and a bird. It's, it's a bird. Cattle and it, as, the, as the cattle move through the, the grass feeding, they'll stir up grasshoppers and the like. And every time something moves, the cattle egrets grab them. So they call that cattle egrating. You know, cattle egrets are originally from Africa. And certainly you and I have seen them around yep. elephant herds and wildebeest herds and things like that. That's They've been doing this for millions of years, I'm sure. But, uh, but so do dragonflies, which is pretty doggone cool. Very cool. And then, um, uh, uh, but, but the, and, and they don't use just one technique. I mean, they kind of merge them all together. So they're just primary feeders. And like you said in the beginning here, when they're on the air and they see something and they fly out to grab it, 95% of the time they're successful in getting that prey. That's impressive. That's a very impressive. Yep. All right, so let's talk about classification of dragonflies. We know they're animals, so that would be kingdom animalia. Let's get a little more specific to the phylum Arthropoda, even more specific to the class Insecta. So all the insects are grouped into different orders based on different characteristics and such. The order to which dragonflies belong to is order Odonata. And I always like to tell people what the names of the orders mean because oftentimes it helps you understand or describes one of the morphological characteristics of that group. In this case, Odonata is Greek for toothed one. So that refers to the dragonfly's serrated teeth, which is pretty fascinating. This group is a big group and it actually includes all of the dragonflies and the damselflies. There's about 5,000 species in this order. And just a quick differentiation between damselfly and dragonflies when you see them, the dragonflies, when they rest, they hold their wings horizontally out to the side. And typically they tend to be bigger in, in their body size. Whereas damselflies will hold their wings together above their body. And I always like to say, think of like a damsel in distress. The damselflies are dainty and they're much smaller. And that typically is um, the way you can readily um, 
differentiate between them when you're looking at them in the field. There are about 132 species of dragonflies found in Louisiana, and some of them have incredible, really fun names like the Eastern Pondhawk, the Little Blue Dragonlets, the Lilypad Forktails. Some of them have saddlebacks, and you can actually see this. It's a, um, a coloration, a pigment on the wings um, as they're flying, and it looks like a saddle bag, a saddlebag. Some of them are called Ebony Jewel Wings, the Royal River Cruiser, Wandering Gliders, some really fascinating names. So look up some in your area and, and try to get a search image for them and go out and try to find them. Another interesting thing about dragonflies is about their development. They are what we refer to as exhibiting incomplete metamorphosis, which means their life cycle starts with the egg. And when the egg hatches out, they are uh, the young, the larval stage, looks very much, it resembles the adults. So we refer to them as being nymphs. Um, more specifically, in the odonate group, the better term for that larval stage is called a naiad. N-A-I-A-D, naiads. During the larval stage, the dragonfly is this voracious predator and is an eating, eating, eating. And that's the same with all insect larval stages. The whole point is to eat and get big and bulk up and and take on whatever toxins you're going to take on or just, just get big. At the end of that stage, the dragonfly crawls out of the water. Then its exoskeleton cracks open. It releases the insect's abdomen, which had been packed in like a telescope. And then its four wings come out. They dry. They harden over the next several hours to days. They're completely vulnerable at this time. But as soon as they harden and dry up, they're able to fly around and then do what insects do as adults, which in this case is not only find a mate, reproduce, but also they spend time bulking up and continuing to eat. And they are voracious predators. What in Men in Black, you know, that big insect that climbs yes. up the thing and going back to the spaceship, is it? Yeah. I mean, that... That was a complete takeoff on these larval odonates. Have y'all noticed dragonfly pairs flying about connected tail to head? I see that a lot, and a lot of students always ask me about that and want to know about it. So the common explanation is that what's happening is that the dragonflies are mating. Um, that's kind of true, but it's more of a behavior that's related to their mating. When dragonflies are ready to mate, males have to prepare for the magic moment via a process called self-insemination. The male genitalia equipment is at the distal tip of their abdomen. Um, we often refer to this as being as the, uh, they have terminal genitalia. It's at the very end of their abdomen. And they also have accessory organs associated with reproduction. It's a place they insert their semen to make it available to the female. And it's near the base of the thorax in a dragonfly. So the male curls his abdomen forward and fills the accessory organ with the semen. And he's at that point now loaded and he's ready to mate. So what he does is he locates a receptive female she lands, the male alights on top of her and bends his tail under his body and grabs the rear of her head with his claspers 
that reside on the tip of his abdomen. So take a look at that in a picture. You can really see it, especially in an insect that's as big as a dragonfly adult. And then what they do is they fly off in tandem and the male is in front. At this point, mating has not yet occurred. So when they're ready for insemination, the pair lands and the female then curls her abdomen forward and under the male until the tip of her abdomen meets his accessory organ. In doing so, their bodies form a copulation or what we also call a mating wheel, which is vaguely heart-shaped. When this is accomplished, the pair unfold and they fly away to find a suitable place to lay eggs. Now, a suitable place. Remember we said earlier that their larval stage is aquatic. So that's one of the reasons you tend to find dragonflies near water systems, because that is gonna be a suitable place for them to lay eggs. In some species, they quickly separate and the male may leave at this point. In others, mating is followed by guarding that allows the male to protect the female from other suitors, thus protecting his sireship. For natural selection, that is one way he maintains or makes sure that he is fit by that definition. For those species that use contact guarding, the male maintains his grip on the female's head during egg laying. For those species using non-contact guarding, the male releases the female but stays near her so that he can thwart the advances of other males because she can actually mate with multiple males. Non-contact guarding is the norm for territorial dragonflies. And then after mating, the female lays eggs within her mate's territory, so he simply stands guard over her as he guards his territory. And so you, one thing that I want to add to this is that it tends to be around water, as we mentioned before, and when she is ready to lay those eggs, she dips her genitalia, which remember is terminal, it's at the distal end, it's at the very end of her abdomen, into the water. And each time she dips her abdomen into the water, she's releasing eggs into the water. Fertilized eggs. Fertilized eggs, absolutely. So another interesting behavior is you often see dragonflies sitting on um, vegetation or something like that, and they have their abdomen directly up into the air. So what's that about, Dad? Well, one of the interesting things about any kind of observation of animals and plants is how do they thermoregulate? How do they, how do they absorb heat when they need it? How do they dissipate it when they are getting too warm? Yes. And so what you see when you see a dragonfly with its abdomen pointing straight up is that it's trying to be small to the sun rays. Yeah. In other words, it, it points that long, its whole body straight up toward the sun rays, so there's not very much uh, area to absorb heat. Uh, if they need to warm up, they will lie flat on a surface and spread out so that they can absorb it. And so when you see one uh, uh, pointing that abdomen up, and it's called obelisking, which is named after the obelisks that humans built over the years, the Romans and the oh. Egyptians and everything. Uh, but uh, uh, they will actually move. If you see one obelisking, if you watch him a while, uh, then he may lie flat because he, by obelisking, he's 
cooling down, and then he feels like he needs a little heat, so he lays down flat, and then he might obelisk again. And, uh, and if they do get too, uh, uh, too cool, then they'll lie flat in the sunlight trying to absorb it, but they'll also whirl their, uh, their, their wings, which generates heat from the body which then heats up the body as well. So, you know, like, like all animals, they have techniques for thermoregulation, and they're always in a position where they're trying to gain heat or dissipate heat cool. or just maintain the temperatures that they have depending on the season. Nice. I suggest you use dragonfly swarms as an opportunity to develop or sharpen your skills in identifying the array of species we have along the Gulf Coast of the United States. You'll be able to entertain your friends with a whole new vocabulary and a bevy of fanciful names. So thanks for joining us today to learn about dragonflies. We hope you're more inspired to get outside and start watching dragonflies more closely, especially right now at the end of summer, beginning of fall when they're most active. And don't forget to subscribe to this podcast and write a review if you enjoyed it. Find out more about the species we found and more resources for naturalists by following us on our social media and our website, lucec.loyno.edu. This episode was produced by Emma Reed, and our introduction music is composed by Hunter Wainwright, a Loyola Popcom graduate. Until next time. Bye.